0: It was a movie about a rock band who are actually martial artists trying to stop drug-dealing ninjas from starting a war in Miami. Radio Drome. Would you call Radio Drome with me, Josh Hadley, a cult show, Cecil T? Absolutely. Absolutely. What about you, Alex, my little pony himself, Jowski?
1: Oh, definitely. It's a cult show. Well, Alex? You have your cult. Yeah, and they'd probably try to sacrifice me if they could. Well, yeah, they'd sacrifice you to me because I'm a god. Do the Adam and Eve promo. Go to adamandeve.com, use the promo code DROME, you get 50% off a single item, free shipping in the United States, three free DVDs, and a free mystery gift. Just by using the promo code DROME, you don't have to sacrifice Hadley, just use the promo code. Thank you for that addendum at the end. Thank you very much.
0: So tonight we're going to be talking about cult movies, and we're going to be playing the rest of our interview with Fred Decker. Do you really think if we had Fred Decker on the line, we were just going to talk about RoboCop? come on, we talked Monster Squad and Night of the Creeps and a couple of things you guys might be surprised about in this as well. So what is your criteria for a
1: cult film? It's a very dedicated following by people that, you know, are loyal to the movie. Whether it's a good movie or a bad movie, you know, they see the faults and it's, you know, the good and the bad in it, but they they are dedicated to the movie and it's something that these people share that's theirs. It's not like it's Oh, everybody loves this show. It's tight group of people that like this show. Sounds like hipsters, sort of. It kind of is like hipsters. No, it's not like hipsters. It's
2: because hipsters would like it to, to be ironic, where you take something that maybe when it came out wasn't the movie that people wanted and or the product that people wanted, a TV show, whatever. Over the years, a following has developed of people that were able to look at it from a different perspective and say, you know, hey, um, this wasn't the movie that people expected, but in the end, it's actually a really cool movie for or, or TV show or whatever for what it is, and it's enjoyable. And a lot of times, they'll develop a very dedicated following, kind of go from there. And a lot of times, cult movies, because of their cult status actually end up becoming something bigger and moving on like firefly when that first came out you know fox screwed it over and it failed miserably and they canceled it right away and over the years the fans nurtured and developed and loved the show and consequently there was you know there's the brown coat conventions and we actually got closure in the series with Serenity. Granted, unfortunately, that didn't do well in theaters, but still we got, they ended up finally, you know, kind of tying things up a bit and we're hoping to move on from there. But so it goes that cult movies and cult products, something
0: that just you get a dedicated group of people into. And usually that dedication happens after the fact, like you pointed out, they usually fail, not always, but most cult films fail upon their initial release and only find their audience later. That's why no one sets out to make a cult film. And that, I think, is part of the problem that we run into with these, some of these newer movies that are being made. When you watch the documentaries on the DVDs, and these are movies that are one or two years old, and the documentaries are made alongside the movie, and they're like, this thing's going to have a cult following. And I think you can't go into it thinking that. You cannot make a cult film. To me, a cult film is not made. It
1: happens. Absolutely. You can't force a cult film. And you see ones that do that, and they are terrible movies that that, that are just horrible. The ones that become cult films are ones that, you know, had a different intent in the first place.
0: Whether you, was... Usually mainstream success was their intent. They just technically failed at that.
2: Yeah. Absolutely. You can't. Force a cult film. Now, occasionally, through incompetence or some kind of magic, a movie will—they'll set out to make a cult film, and they'll actually become a cult film. Like Sharknado. Sharknado—they set out to make it a cult film, and it's one of those rare instances where it actually all came together and it worked. But the majority of the time, if they do try to make it a cult film, it ends up failing worse because it just doesn't work. Like um, I was working on a project for uh, a client and one of their stipulations in the contract, we're were, uh, editing a a video for them. And uh, one of the stipulations for the contract was that the video had to go viral. And we had to explain to them Viral is. You really don't have any control over that. They realized that, right? No, they had no idea. They thought that like when you uploaded a video to YouTube and you're checking the boxes, like one of the boxes that
0: you checked was for the video to go viral. That's sad on multiple levels, really, Cecil. Tell me about it. And we had to explain to these people. But then on that note, since we're talking with Fred Decker later, something like Night of the Creeps. Night of the Creeps was made by everyone involved to be a mainstream success, and it failed. Pretty hard, actually. It's a $5 million film that only made a half million dollars in the theaters. So by all definitions, it was a failure and a flop. And then on video, and especially cable, it found its audience, and it became a devoted audience, and it's made its money back a hundredfold by this point. Do you think that if The Money Men would be willing to just wait, even if it fails theatrically, to just wait that a cult film can happen. Even though Alex and I both agreed you can't make a cult
1: film, it has to happen, you can sometimes want that to happen, though, can't you? Yes, you can want it to happen, but the fact that if it's going to become cult or not is so unpredictable, it's not really something you can wait for. It's just something you're thankful for after it happens. Look at Tread dread did not do well at all in theaters
0: i mean america
2: did quite well overseas well okay but i'm saying but but from the studio's perception if it doesn't do well in america it's a flop they they even though they do have huge markets overseas they still perceive it as a flop so dread was perceived as a flop in the u.s but then when it came out on on home video it It broke all kinds of records. It made just tons of money. Everybody bought it, rented it, was talking about it. It was a huge sensation because that was after the fact.
0: They still perceived it as a failure. Why why do you think, then, that these find their audiences later? Let's go back to Night of the Creeps. Why do you think no one wanted to go to the theater to see this 3 a.m. on Cinemax, found its audience? Why do you think the same people who would watch this movie at 3 a.m. on Cinemax would not go to the theater to see Night of the Creeps?
1: Maybe it just didn't look interesting to them at the time. Maybe there was just different things available at the time that looked better. Well, Night Night of the Creeps came out at that weird
2: time when movies weren't being released in thousands of theaters like they were still getting these smaller releases and sometimes timed releases where they would release in a couple of cities this week and then a little later they'd release in a few more cities so it's possible that it just didn't have a good enough ad campaign or it only released in a couple of theaters and people didn't go see it and it, it i mean it, it it's there's that weird Timing of what else came out that weekend that more people may have gone to see. And when the reason why it ended up becoming a cult film was once it's on cable, it'll be running, you know, uh, sometimes two, three times a day, especially now when we have. Back uh, then,
0: though, they usually only ran a movie on cable two or three times a month. You got the same film. They didn't do this. It's on at six and nine and twelve thing. I I remember stuff would get
2: run at least at least twice a day, especially for like if it was popular stuff. Because I used to set my VCR to record certain things, and I mean, uh, but it's just that with something that people would stumble upon at 3 a.m., a lot of times they would turn it on and. Oh, there's boobs in this or something, and they'd keep watching, and they'd be like, "Oh, this is a really cool film. What's it called?" And then they would tell their friends about it, and word of mouth would spread, and the you know the following would kind
0: of start from there. And I think part of it has to do with with availability, like Alex was hinting at. There's also the fact that look at like Star Trek, which is arguably the biggest cult TV series of all time. Lasted three seasons, only one extra season because of a letter writing campaign. It was never highly rated. It wasn't a disaster, but it was never highly rated, but it had a large budget. And you wonder, well, why then in the 70s when they started to syndicate it, did it grow in popularity so fast? And it was because basically it didn't work in its original time period. It was up against other shows that were far bigger raters. It was on a, in a bad time slot, whereas then Star Trek gets syndicated... And it's on when you're eating dinner. It's on in the afternoon. It's on on a Saturday evening when you can catch it. Sometimes you just – the audience misses it the first time around, and the second time around when it becomes a cult, it's just due to these people
1: knew what they had. Oh, exactly. There are movies that just happen to be at a bad spot on – not movies, television series that happen to have a bad spot on television. Whether they were on a channel that sucked or just a horrible time. Like, Star Trek was on Friday nights, well, for
0: one of the seasons anyway, Friday nights in the middle of the hour. It started at 7.30. So if you wanted to watch Star Trek, you either had to stop watching one of the other hour dramas it was up against for the last half, or you had to miss the first half of Star Trek. That's just idiotic
1: to schedule it like that, isn't it? But nowadays, that's cancelled out by the fact that everything is on demand. Right,
0: things have changed. But you don't get too many modern cult hits. Most, when we talk about a cult movie, usually, I disagree with Cecil's Sharknado example, but usually, it's something that's older. For one thing, cult takes, a, t- takes time to find its audience, usually. Well, as a, in general, it takes time.
2: And sometimes things, it'll, it might take a decade or it might take two decades until somebody uh, recognizes it. Uh, it could even come down to something like uh, somebody doing a, an internet video on it and pointing out, you know, that, hey, th- this movie exists. And then it becomes a thing because uh, people look into it and they're like, holy crap, this is awesome like something like troll 2 uh, like just it blew up because of time and cable so that's why i'm saying like something like sharknado is a rarity it doesn't happen very often the majority of things they take
0: a long time to nurture and cultivate and become a cult hit but i think with sharknado i think that was one of those manufactured ones they you know you look at some of the making ofs they knew exactly what they were making they marketed it virally It went viral. The the way it was marketed was this is a future cult movie. That's why I don't think that is a true cult movie because it was marketed and made to be a cult hit. But that's the thing. That's why I'm saying is that there's been a lot of movies that they
2: tried to market them as a cult hit and it didn't work. And Sharknado is one where they actually knew what they were doing and they just got lucky because the movie had that right amount of entertainment slash
0: crap. Especially to the people who starred in them. Like The Visitor, that 1979 movie I'm always going on about. When Mike White and I interviewed Paige Connor the little girl from that for the projection booth episode on the visitor. I was the first person to contact her about that movie. You know, since then Code Red has contacted her, Alamo Drafthouse says she's been in their documentaries and that screenings and Alamo Drafthouse has re-released the movie and it's grown really big. When I first contacted her, she was like, "You want to talk about that movie?" She had no idea this was a cult thing online. Why do you think sometimes even the people who participated
1: in the work are kind of like, really? That movie's a cult hit? It is surprising that some movies do become cult hits. I think you and very few people are part of the cult of the visitor. No, oh God, you are the most passionate no. member of that cult. no, no. You no, no, need no. that cult there, no. Josh.
0: At, with Alamo Drafthouse re releasing it, that movie has gone up a lot. The DVD sales are really strong. Alamo Drafthouse re-releasing that has really made The Visitor find its audience. Uh, that's Even though Mike White now. and I were pushing it long before that, <laughs> hipsters that we are. Oh, I was into The
1: Visitor before it was cool.
2: With something like The Visitor, it's just it took the right people to see it. So when you have something that is not really easily available, a lot of times – It just doesn't get in front of the right eyes and it doesn't take off. And so consequently, it doesn't go anywhere. But uh, when you have a movie that gets re-released on DVD after X amount of years and then people start to see it and start to hear about it, then that's how the cult will start from there. There's a ton of VHS movies That uh, never made the transition to DVD that probably would have a bigger cult following, but because they're not easily viewable, uh, there's only a few people that manage to either have copies of them, uh, either physical or digital, that are very, very,
0: very small cults. Well, you even have certain actors who tend to be cult actors. Look at someone like Reb Brown. Reb Brown couldn't make his way through Hollywood. He just, his career kept floundering through, you know, he'd get a big movie and then that would fail and then he'd do a couple more direct-to-video movies and then he'd get a big one and it would fail. And look at somebody like Reb Brown. He's one of the biggest cult action stars of the internet age. Is that strange that that happens, that people have latched on to Reb Brown mostly due to Mystery Science Theater 3000? Do you agree with that, that Reb Brown would be a cult
1: actor definitely a cult actor same with bruce campbell only bruce campbell's mainstream. bruce campbell's a bit if you can say mainstream cult if that's a thing that would, be, that would be bruce campbell i think yeah but like oh everybody knows who bruce campbell is but reb brown if you know who reb brown is you're in the know Poser.
0: you know
2: poster I, I kind of like put reb brown In the mix of like Godfrey Ho is that there are people who are aware of uh, Red Brown and there are people who are aware of Godfrey Ho just uh, because they've either uh, seen them lampooned or uh, they were up at three in the morning and they saw your. Yeah, I mean, definitely you can have an actor or a director or whatnot that
0: becomes a cult hero. I think Fred Decker might be the perfect example of a cult director. He made Night of the Creeps, failed on initial release, got a huge cult following. Made Monster Squad, failed on initial release, had a huge cult following. He made RoboCop 3, failed on release, not really a cult following, but it's, it's moving up there. And almost all of the screenplays he wrote for other directors were the same way. Movies that did not do all that well but grew a cult following like House and House 2 and things like that. I think Fred Decker is the ultimate example of that arguable mainstream cult director.
1: I guess you could say that. He's one of many.
0: I think that with uh,
2: the remake, reboot of RoboCop coming out, that a lot of people were going back and watching RoboCop 3 and realizing that, you know, it's not the RoboCop that we wanted, but it's not as bad as we remember it and it's not as bad as the remake was so i
0: think that's going to start you're going to start seeing a lot more people gravitating towards that over the next you think robocop 3 is going to get the same cult following monster squad and creeps does no i don't see it getting as much as them because they are they are
2: definitive classics as far as i'm concerned but i think that robocop 3 is going to develop its own little cult that that's going to have people that aren't going to Talk about how terrible it is. Uh, they're actually going to defend it for a change. Because, like we said when we did the, the RoboCop thing, is going back and watching it, it's no, it's it's nowhere near the quality of the original. But, in and of itself,
0: it is not a bad film. It's actually quite entertaining. I agree with that. So we're, here's our interview with Fred Decker. And guys, pay very close attention. There's going to be a Monster Squad 2 hint in here. Also he talks a little bit about working on Star Trek Enterprise. I'm not going to ruin that for you guys.
1: Throughout your career, you've done both directing and writing. Which part appeals to you more? Which have you enjoyed more? The writing process or directing?
3: Oh, I never wanted to be a writer. I never wanted to. It was just a means to an end. When I started... I was going to UCLA as an English major because the film school wouldn't, pay, wouldn't take me. And I was making films with my friends and video and Super 8 and 16 millimeter. That's all I ever wanted to do was, was be a director. And at that time, and still now to a degree, that's one way to break in is to, is to be a writer. And I, I, I guess I had some facility at it, and it helped me. But if I had my if I had my brothers, I would I, I wouldn't be I wouldn't write because it's 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 lonely and it's hard and. Pretty unsatisfying. Uh, yeah, I, I'm not a big fan of I'm not a big fan of writing at all. But like I say, I have a facility for it, and so I have managed to, to eke a living out of it. But if I had my if I had my way, I would just direct because it's it's the best job in the world. You create a world and you have all these people helping you, and people who are really talented and and it's fun and it's social and it's it's great.
2: Now that Night of the Creeps and Monster Squad and even RoboCop three to a certain degree have become cult hits. Is, is there any possibility – I know you just said that you would love to direct again. Is there any possibility that you would be directing again anytime in the near future?
3: Well, just so you know, ever since um, ever since RoboCop 3, I've been working on things to direct. Um, the, the problem is two, it's twofold. One is that I don't get a lot of offers. And the offers that I have had is material that I don't love. So I'm, I, I think Hollywood is kind of waiting for me to come up with the next thing that I want to do. But the problem is I've to sit down and write it, and I can't afford to hire the writers that I would want to write it for me. So I end up kind of in this, you know, I kind of paint it into a corner. It's like if I don't write it, then I can't make it. But I don't want to write it. So um, so it's been, it's been difficult. I will not lie to you. It's been difficult. One of
0: our listeners said, we have to ask you, where's my Monster Squad sequel?
3: A part of me can't, can't uh, really respond to that because I'm, I'm noodling something, and it's, it's a very primitive stage. But, but the truth of the matter is, that particular movie, I have a very firm idea of how I would want it to be done, and I'm not sure that the, the machinery of, of Hollywood, and specifically Paramount, who owns the rights to it now, would be responsive to what I want to do, but you know, we'll see. We'll find out. We shall see. I just don't think it's a kid's movie. I don't want to say I don't want to make the same mistake I made on Robocop three with, with a sequel to monster squad. And they've been, by the way, developing a, a, a remake for a couple of years now. I've, I, I'm fairly sure it's dead right now, but uh, I just thought that was just the worst idea I ever heard. It's It's like, I mean, I'm against remakes in general, but, but this one just seems so unfresh. It seems so kind of like we've just, you know, we've got eight years, seven years of Buffy and the comics and Harry Potter and, you know, these shows on Nickelodeon. And it's like, do we really, I mean, it, does Monster Scrubs just sound like colossally unoriginal at this point? To me, it does. However, if we did a sequel the way I'm thinking of it, it would, it would be much more beholden to, this, to the fans of the movie. It's re- it would really be a sequel for the fans of the movie who get it, who are much older than the, the – the whatever it is, 13 to 24 audience. They're, everybody's a little bit older than that. I think the, I think the sequel should, should uh, reflect that myself.
1: Yeah, how was right. Monster Squad received when it came out? Because I remember it came out when I was a kid, and everybody loved it when I grew up. it was popular I loved then. Monster Squad. Yeah, Here's a,
3: I appreciate that. I appreciate that, guys. Here's the problem with it: it was ahead of its time, and I don't mean that with sort of false humility. I'm not trying to brag. There was a time when there was family movies and grown-up movies, and like right now, we have a, a similar thing. There's, you know, if you look at Steven Spielberg's first, you know, m- m- my favorite films. I mean, he's my hero. If you look at The Sugarland Express and Jaws and Close Encounters and, and ET, those movies are all. Not Sugar Land so much, but the others are mainstream, you know, sort of popcorn summer movies, but they actually have human beings in them. You don't find human beings in mainstream popcorn movies anymore. You only find them in low-budget independent films. Well, back when I made Monster Squad, there were either family movies or there were horror movies, and everybody tried, and there's Harry and Hendersons, and there's Gremlins, and there's a lot of these movies that sort of straddle both worlds, but audiences tend to be confused by that, at least they did they did then. Now it's a whole different world. Now PG, everybody wants to do PG-13. In those days, it actually, it actually kind of shot us in the foot. Grown-ups thought it was a kid's movie, and kids couldn't go without their parents. So you ended up with just guys like you who thought, ooh, this, is, this looks cool, it has monsters, let's go see it. If you couldn't get your, your parents to, to take you to it if you were 8 or 10 years old, then you were kind of out of luck. And, and teenagers wouldn't touch it because it looked like a kid's movie. There's one
0: moment in it that really told me that you were serious about making this as for fun, but also for adults. When they're asking scary German guy if he knows about monsters and the camera pans to his concentration camp tattoo, that was a jarring bit of reality that maybe I'm being too much of a film snob and reading into it, that told me, yes, this is a fun, goofy adventure, but there is real evil in the world, too.
3: Well, I I appreciate your your, uh, mentioning that moment because that was very important to me. I I don't think if you're making a a film that's in the world of the kind of the fantastic that you can do it without having some integrity or some truth, you know, some reality base. Uh, uh, Otherwise, there's nothing to hang on to. That's why I don't like camp, you know, Rocky Horror and and stuff like that. I just don't like it because it's all about the goof. It's all about, look, isn't this cute and funny and we're all... You know, and and and, and, it, and it's sort of making fun of itself while it's happening, and and even *Night of the Creatures makes fun fun of itself quite a bit in, in the context of the movie. It still is essentially that, like it or not, those characters have a an emotional reality, and they have a, a journey that they're going on, and and I really think that's important in any movie that you make. Is you got to take it seriously, even if it's a dumb idea, you still have to take it seriously, or else the audience just checks out. Says, you know, well, if the filmmakers don't care, why should we care? My movies care a little too much. I think they may have a little bit too much of that stuff so that they aren't so easily, you can't just sort of blink them away. And I'm proud of that, frankly.
2: You absolutely should be because that's what kind of takes your films and elevates them to a different level where it's not just you watch it once and then you immediately forget about it. You watch these and every time you watch them, you catch a little something here and there. And that's what I think has kind of helped to make these cult hits over the years that people have seen them and then have gone back and watched them again and again and again. And every time they have a little bit of a different experience because as they get older, they maybe pull a little bit more meaning out of it than they maybe first saw when they were like 10 years old.
3: That's very cool. That's very cool of you to say. I mean, they were made with love. I, I was all. I always, you know, I loved movies from the time I was old enough to understand what they were. And, and so, to me, the the opportunity to make one is 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 joy. It's it's the, it's the greatest opportunity in the world. So I'm. I never thought of it as a job. I never said, Oh God, I got to get up. I got to go to the set. I got to do this thing. And I think the directors who do who fall into that sort of trap of like. Having to pay their mortgage or, or their alimony, and that's why they do it. I think the movies reflect that. And so the one thing you can say about my meager little oeuvre is that is that there is definitely there is love in all of those movies. Since um,
2: Night of the Switching over to Night of the Creeps just for a second. Since that ended on uh, well, actually both endings ended with sort of a cliffhanger. Uh, did you ever have a sequel in mind, or was that just a cool way to kind of end that one out?
3: Yeah, well, the the, the 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 zombie dog ending of Night of the Creeps was a flat out was a flat out attempt to appease the studio, and I never liked it. I always thought it was a total cop out. And the story goes like the, the story of what happened is that I shot the cemetery ending, which was always which was the, always my my ending for the film. That was in the screenplay, and that was the idea was the aliens are going to come back and look for their their experiment and who knows what's going to happen next and i thought well that's a cool ending but when i showed it to the studio the the uh visual effect shots it involved mini- it involved uh, miniatures and um and matte paintings and it was a, it was a fairly elaborate shot and it wasn't finished yet and i showed it to the studio before it was finished and they got very confused which was weird because you know you think people in the movie business are pretty smart about the movie business, but they kind of turned into fools and idiots. They're so like, Oh, well, there's a there's a light stand. Okay, well we're gonna we're gonna map that out. See, how come it's in black and white? Well, we're not finished with the effect shot. But when we finish, yeah, but how come it? I don't know what that is. And it's like it's not finished. So the truth is, it was my mistake, and I, I shouldn't have shown it to them before it was finished. But they got cold feet about it and said, you know, you know. I can't, what about a cheap scare ending? Let's, you know, Friday the 13th ripped off Carrie. So why don't we rip off Friday the 13th and do a cheap scare ending? I just hated it. So the idea that that would then go into a sequel, I, I wouldn't know what to do. If I had to do that, to put a gun to my head and said, now what happens? I'd go, shoot, I don't know. But the, but the the cemetery ending on the other hand, I think apart from the fact that we, that we kill off detective Cameron, who's my favorite character in the movie, apart from that, um, I think there's lots of opportunities to go someplace. I don't know what they are, and I, I really wouldn't know where to begin. But uh, but none of it was intentional. None of it was, you know, sequel setup. I always think that's a mistake when you make a movie. When you make your first movie and you and you intentionally have a sequel setup, I think it's real cheesy because it's it's kind of conceited. You're assuming the movie's good enough and people are going to love it enough to want to see more.
0: When your movies get received the way that they do, that you know, they usually don't find their audience, history has shown, till years later. And mm-hmm. any of just the screenplays you've written, like Ricochet or If Looks Could Kill, did you want to direct those, or were you happy to hand them off to their respective directors?
3: Well, Ricochet actually was, I very came very close to, to directing. Um, in fact, I had a meeting with Kurt Russell about playing the cop in that, and I don't quite recall how it came that I didn't do it but but it really at that time wasn't my cup of tea and even now I think if you if somebody offered me a, a sort of a cop action movie, I don't know that it's something that I would really do a great job with I'd give it my best and I might enjoy it, but it's not my first instinct because I like to mix things up. I like movies that are kind of a little bit of a little bit of uh, this and a little bit of that. Uh, you know, if it's a, if it's a drama, there better be some, something funny in it, and if it's a comedy, better get serious at some point. I, I don't like that kind of one-note approach. If Little Free was originally called Teen Agent, and I met with um, Anthony Michael Hall, I actually wrote it for Anthony Michael Hall. I think that movie was just so enormous in concept. I don't think I was in a position where they would have taken me seriously to direct, but I love James Bond. And I loved, uh, those early John Hughes films where, where Anthony Michael Hall was just this kind of crazy genius kid actor. And I thought, well, that'd be, that'd be hilarious to put this kind of goofy kid into a James Bond adventure. So that that's where that came from. But I think of a movie was just too big for for them to give. There were some good, uh, there some, uh, I, I've been lucky with actors. I've had some good people in, in the movies I direct, and I've had some good movies, and the ones that I have, Linda Hunt was in that movie. Ricochet, of course, was Denzel Washington. I mean, you can't do much better than that.
2: Also, Tom Atkins for
3: Night of the Creeps is just well, like at, yeah. Atkins is you know you hope in your career. First, you hope you get a career, and then once you're you're in it, you hope as a director anyway that you're going to catch lightning in a bottle. That's what that's how that's what I think being a director is. It's standing in a field with a bottle. And waiting and going, where's the lightning gonna strike? Where's the lightning gonna strike? And the really good ones, uh, the Spielbergs and the Kubricks and guys like that, they're so talented that they kind of instinctively know where where to put the bottle against the lightning, and that's why they do it more often than others. Um, and with me, that was that was, you know, Tommy Atkins walked in. I was not. A, I knew the fog, and I knew Skip New York. Um, and Halloween 3 and I, I knew who he was but I wasn't like this was long before he had a cult following and any kind I of wasn't like "Who oh, is it's Tom Atkin I'd written his part and he came in and he did the he did a scene and I said thank you very much very nice to meet you terrific job and he walked out and I turned to the casting director and I said that's it that's the guy because it's that alchemy that chemistry of like the, the ac- right actor with the right words and you just know okay well this is going to work so I'm very pleased with his, per- his performance in that movie is probably Probably my favorite performance in anything I've done. It, it also has to do, by the way, with what we were talking about before, which is the way that he plays it is even though most of his lines are wise ass lines, you know, to thrill me and all that stuff, he's not playing it as a joke. And I actually learned this from the Monty Python guys who I revere. I'm a huge fan of Monty Python. And if you look at, at, at um, Life of Brian or, or Holy Grail, they have a comic you know, timing and they have a comic approach, but they're basically both of those movies seem to actually take place in the middle ages and, and biblical times because they're, they're, they're playing the reality of it. And that's when it's funny. It's not funny when you're mugging and trying to be funny. If, if on the page it's funny and you play it straight, then it works. And, and what I love about Tom Atkinson in night of the creeps is that he plays this role completely straight and that's why it works. Because he's not mugging, he's not winking. He's just, and, and I maintain also, if you're a fan of that movie, I've come to the conclusion that that character is actually insane. That he actually something in his head, a little switch, toggle switch. When he sees the 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 zombie of this killer that he that he actually killed, you know, 20 years earlier or whatever, he goes nuts. And for the whole last act of that movie he's completely off his off his uh, ass nuts crazy and that's why he's saying these weird funny lines not because he's trying to be funny but because he's actually he's actually gone over to the to the dark side i think that's why it's good
1: how did you get started on in filmmaking i mean how did you get your foot in the door so to speak to in order to get started on night of the creeps
3: Uh, I just, I started writing in college. I was making movies the whole time. And I, I wrote a script and, uh, I uh, threw it in the waste basket and I wrote another script and it was a little better, but it still wasn't worth showing to anybody. And then after about three or four, I finally had one that I thought was worth showing to an agent. And I had a contact, a friend of mine, Ed Solomon, who, who you may know as the writer of, uh, Men in Black. And, uh, Now You See Me and he directed Levity and he had met an agent and, gave me the phone number and I called the agent and said will you read this script of mine and he read it and he said I think this is great I want to represent you and I've been with that agent ever since so it's a combination of
0: doing the work
3: and having uh, contacts
0: And How did you get involved with Star Trek? Because I see you were a producer and wrote some screenplays for Enterprise and I I have to be honest I'm not an Enterprise fan but I'm a big Star Trek fan. How did you Mm -hmm. fall in bed with Star Trek?
3: Uh, it, they just offered it to me out of the blue. I don't know if it was sort of my agents, you know, pounding the pavement, or if uh, uh, I never got the sense that they were fans of my other work at all. I think uh, uh, it was just kind of I was in this a particular place at a particular time, and I met with the with the executive producers, and, and I was excited because I'm not a I'm like J.J. J. Abrams. If, if if I have my choice of Star Trek or Star Wars, I'll always go for Star Wars because I'm just more sort of fantasy oriented i'm not a sci-fi guy per se but but i was very excited about kind of inventing the backstory i thought it would be cool to be a part of this kind of like all what happened before kirk and spock and those guys and um so i went in really kind of excited and 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 i I agree with you i'm not a fan of the show either i just think it's kind of leaden. it's just kind of dull um i think it was because they were afraid to take chances they had been doing the next generation and uh deep space nine and voyager and and they'd been doing it for so long that they were afraid to to really break the mold. they said they wanted to break the mold, but they really didn't and uh so it was a fr- it was frustrating for me because uh we were just sort of okay what do you want boss
1: first of all i'm glad that you weren't involved with that one notorious star trek enterprise episode
0: the series finale, the
1: yeah. Up. The series finale. Oh,
3: scary. oh! I hated that so much. I actually stopped watching it after I was off the show, but I watched that just because I think it was something that we all need to do, and it's a perfect example of what I'm talking about. Uh, and I know for, I, I, I to, to speak out of school, I happen to know that Scott was really unhappy with that too. What the last episode of Enterprise does is it basically says that the whole series was part of another uh, of another one of the series, which to me is a really an insult to everybody who worked on it. And it's also a kind of a smug slapping themselves on the back, like, oh, you know, we've created this universe, and we can do whatever we want. And and I I really, I think that that was a a real um, kind of an insult to the fans and to the people that made the show.
1: Well, mostly I was talking about the episode titled, um, what was it, A Night in the Infirmary, because a lot of fans consider that the turning point where Star Trek Enterprise started to go downhill. But Hmm. how much knowledge did you have of the Star Trek franchise before you went into Writing and producing some episodes for it.
3: I think I was as conversant in Trek canon as any kind of semi fan, but I was not the kind of rabid fan that that some of the other staff were. Um, and it was always fun to watch them, you know, talk about. Uh, they, we, they mentioned some ensign from you know some, from the second the second season of Next Generation. I go, I have no idea what you guys are talking about. So, um, but I actually thought for me that was, a, that was an asset to have an objective, to have somebody in the room, uh, myself and a couple other people who weren't total Star Trek nerds, who could say, yeah, that's, that's interesting if you care about Trek lore. But if you don't, it's just kind of, it, in a way, it's pushing audiences away. I always wanted new people to come in and go, ooh, this show is cool, forget that it's Star Trek. But they were just very, very beholden to their, to their brand. And I think that the show suffered because of it.
0: I thought Fred Decker was a fascinating person to talk to. Oh, it was
2: fascinating. I really enjoyed it. He was awesome. And I was trying very hard not to let my fanboy card slip out. Oh, my
0: God. Were you going to (laughs) squee? I I think I, I did a little bit. Just a little in your pants? Yes. Well, no. Why do you think the term cult film is nowadays a badge of honor that Now people are proud to, well, I made a cult film. Whereas in the 80s, cult films were, again, going back to it, like we established earlier, it tends to take a while. Cult films were the stuff from the 60s and earlier. Now people are, yeah, I made that cult film three years ago. Why do you think cult film is now a badge of honor when it used to be sort of a almost scarlet letter? Because it almost was a yeah, I made this film for whatever major studio and it failed. So what if it found that its audience on video still killed my career?
1: I think it's a point of pride that you made something people enjoy. You, they have every right to be proud of it. With uh, cult properties, the thing is, a lot of
2: directors, actors, like have put out something that it bombed or they didn't like it or it ruined their career. But then years later, it comes back and it becomes – fame it it kind of rejuvenates their fame to a certain degree because now uh you're getting a a director or somebody who hasn't had work in a while and all of a sudden uh he's being called for interviews or maybe they want to do a documentary about this so it's pushing that thing back into the spotlight and a lot of times they can use that as a springboard to restart their career or to a certain degree maybe not get it back to where it was but get them going and starting to make quote-unquote cult films. Because it's like, okay, well, you made this, so now uh, we're going to have you start making, you know, like B-movies and stuff. Because that's what a lot of them want to do. They want to be working in the industry, and I think that they're enjoying the fact that their thing that they made has been rediscovered,
0: and it's getting them back on the map. But don't you think some of them would have preferred to have stayed on the map in the first place? Yeah, okay, that film's appreciated now. 20 years after I was not able to find work and had to become a pizza chef because all of my movies failed. Do you think that's really makes up for the 20 years that that, that film was haunting them and costing them work? Well, of
2: course. I mean, they would rather continue to work and not get screwed over by it. But that's the... That's how the industry is. It's fickle. So I I think that um, they would rather it come back and eventually become a cult property and something they can kind of put to rest, so to speak. It's like, okay, you know, this thing is really haunted, bothered me for all these years, but now that people are recognizing it and they're enjoying it, I feel like I finally can move on from this. I think that that's better than never, you know,
0: finding an audience at all. Why is being a cult film such a fickle thing that sometimes you've got a film that even when you look back at it from our perspective, say some film from the eighties and you just kind of go, why did this film still never find a cult audience? It has all the elements of a cult film. And yet it's still in 2014 is not finding its audience. Why do you think some cult films find their audience and some just continue to languish in obscurity
1: well, some languish in obscurity because they suck, and others just because, you know, that moment where people find it and it goes viral hasn't happened yet. It's not an exact science. So uh,
2: sometimes things just don't work out the way they want them to. They, uh, The director or whoever worked on it wants it to be found, and all right, it didn't do well theatrically, but maybe uh, it'll develop a cult following, and it never does, and it just goes away. It's just, you know, it's just the way that it is. Think of how many TV shows that are really good and how many actors that are really good and uh, directors that just they never get that success. And then they just fall off the map and they disappear and they're forgotten. It's just an unfortunate thing with the industry. Sometimes the quality just gets passed over.
0: Do you believe that lack of availability plays a factor in a film becoming a cult film? Because most cult films, and TV is different in this aspect, but for film, it tends to be the harder it is to find, the more devoted the following is to it. Do you think that if The Visitor was released by, say, Paramount into every Best Buy and onto all the red boxes, it would have found the audience that it did with Alamo Drafthouse re-releasing it? on a relatively small scale lack of availability fuels cult
1: i think not lack of availability but just lack of popularity fuels it that if it's something that not that's not out there in the common you know being talked about every single day something a bit obscure not like absolutely obscure something that something that someone is going to tell you about and introduce you to, because that's part of the cult, is somebody saying, hey, you should check this out. I think that uh,
2: with the lack of availability, it definitely makes it more of a focused cult because you have such a smaller group of people and they're more rabid about it because it never achieved that massive success. So uh, they do feel like, they have a, a a smaller click and it's, yeah, we're the ones that know about this and a lot of other people don't know about it. Whereas when something does finally get released, like a Miami Connection, then it blows up and it becomes a bigger cult hit because now anybody can go on Amazon and order a copy as opposed to uh, a smaller uh, unknown film like Skullduggery where if you want it, uh, you have to go and either find a digital copy of it or rip it order a copy off of eBay of the VHS
0: for like 100 bucks. I was going to say I think I have that on VHS. It is a, it's a hoot. But then you 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 brought up Miami Connection. Look at a movie like Miami Connection. I believe that was made in 86 or 87. It was a movie about a rock band who are actually martial artists trying to stop drug dealing ninjas from starting a war in Miami. Now, you look at that today in the culture we have of Far Cry 3, Blood Dragon, and Grindhouse, and all these looking back fondly at the insanity of what movies used to be like. Do you think Miami Connection was destined to fail in the late 80s, and yet, for some reason, it just fits perfectly into where we are now? I'm not kidding. It's about drug-dealing ninjas taking on a rock band with Kung Fu abilities am i wrong cecil no that's that's it, and it's magnificent
2: it uh it plays almost like a parody of itself like if it yeah if it when, when out- i
0: first when I first saw the trailer for that Cecil, I thought it was a brilliant grindhouse style parody until I went, holy crap, this is a real movie, and then I started digging around and found I actually saw this once it was on cable one time. I actually saw, like, the last half hour of it, but I didn't know what it was called then. Yeah, it's it's a magnificent, like, ca-
2: encapsulation of all the insanity of the 80s just, just crunched into one movie, and that's why uh, I think at the time, people just, uh, you know, we were already going through all that, so it was like, oh, another one of these. But uh, now you look at it, and if now... People are going, and they're, they're like, what? There's a movie like this that came out in the 80s, and it's real? And it's not a parody, but it plays like a parody, and it's just awesome. So
0: something like that uh, I inadvertently was destined to become a cult hit. And see, to me, the thing with cult is, I think, for one thing, the term is spread around way too liberally. Like that one list Brad, Brian, and I went off on in a much earlier Radiodrome where the guy was labeling Kevin Smith as a cult director and Stanley Kubrick as a cult film director. And it was like, you don't really know what cult film is, do you? Just because someone made a cult film. Yeah, Kubrick made a cult film, but he was not a cult film director. There is a difference. I'm not going to rehash that. But I, but do you think that the term is applied wrong more often than it's right in today's movie going culture i think it's
1: applied wrong a lot of times people want to do it as a marketing thing or people want just to think that the movies they love are cult films i guess it's kind of a dick way i'm putting it there
2: yeah but a major point absolutely because there's a movie unfortunately i can't think of what it is off the top of my head but they're running trailers for it and there's a bunch of people in the comments that are like it's a new cult classic and it's like how can it be a cult classic it's not even out yet you know, well, you that know even goes How can it even be classic?
0: Yeah, yeah. That, that even goes to Alex just went on, and I refuse to ever click on BuzzFeed. Alex had this BuzzFeed list of classic horror films. Almost 40% of them from the list he posted were from 2000 and up. No, classic guys, do you know what classic means? Text. Yeah, yeah, it's like, do you know what classic means when, oh, movies made in the last 14 years, those are, cult classic films no they're not
2: and like alex pointed out they didn't have any hammer films on there they had the wrong they had the wicker man listed but they had the picture of freaking the remake it's like did you guys do any research on this at all or did you just take a bunch of pictures
0: halloween was from halloween 4 that's
1: right
2: the image from halloween
1: was from halloween 4 dragging me to hell on there because it starts with these are classic films that have defined the horror genre including You're Next. Like that movie came out last year, and it didn't really define the genre. It's well, just part of next, the genre.
2: But, uh, but that's the thing. But it hasn't been around long enough to really warrant being on a classic list.
0: Well, Alex, that list is endemic of what we're talking about. Do you, do you think that, the general, that your general filmgoer today, your modern one, your kid that was born in the late 90s, do you think they don't understand what a cult film is, or in that case, even a, what a classic is? Or do you think this is the way the media has wrecked these terms for them? I think
1: it's the way the media has wrecked the term. I mean, hell, they wreck a lot of terms. Clickbait sites will, like, ten cult movies you've never heard of. I can't stand that whole you've never heard of, of thing because too. it
0: all they do is make me feel like a hipster when I go, I've seen all of these and the sequels arrogant bastards you just made me into a hipster because i knew these movies before they were cool
2: yeah i i hate uh right now the big thing is all the upworthy stuff where it's this happened and you have to click here because you won't believe what happens next and i'm like no i'm not falling into your stupid trap so but yeah that that's
0: it's uh, the same thing alex used to alex and kevin from geek juice would make fun of me i refuse to click on slideshows Slideshows are only there to get, say it's the top 10 horror movies you've never seen, and it's one per page, and you click next and click next. It's so they get 10 clicks to show their advertisers instead of one by putting them all on the same goddamn page. I'm not playing your game. Slideshow means I'm not reading your goddamn list. I want to say that I think cult film is being misappropriated by the wrong people, but it is being applied correctly by the right people. I know that sounds sort of like a, well, then it makes it your fault for not getting it, but it kind of is. If you're one of those people that says, "High tension is a cult classic," no, it's not. It's not even a decade old. It's not a cult classic, and it was a relative hit. It's not a cult film that you need to stop just apply, you need to stop using buzzwords and start actually learning something about the history of film.
1: I think cult film is really defined by the cult that enjoys the film. I mean, some people, like, this is a cult film. This is something special that we all share. You know, this is something we get that, you know, nobody else gets it, but we don't care, you know. But then people use it as a buzzword the wrong way, and that just pisses all of us geeks off.
2: Repo Man is a cult classic. Martyrs is not a cult classic. And I'm not sick because I love Martyrs, and I will say that Martyrs is a, has a cult following, but I think that a lot of times, for some reason, I guess they like the, uh, the flow, uh, you know, it's a cult classic, they automatically, instead of just saying it is a cult film. So there's that difference between cult classic and cult film.
0: Where can people find the good bad flick himself, Cecil? You can find me at goodbadflicks.com as well as geekjuicemedia.com. You can find me 1201beyond.com. Contact the show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. I'm also at geekjuicemedia.com, and I want to give another special thanks to Fred Decker for not only talking to us but really being open with a lot of his answers. So Fred Decker is awesome, and if you guys haven't picked up The Monster Squad or Night of the Creeps DVDs, do so. think you're not afraid of the dark, if you think you have a strong stomach, (gasps) if you feel nothing can shock you, if you say you don't scare easily, if you
3: Men, women, and
1: children, and drive them to acts of unspeakable horror.